Welcome to Real Personal Finance. I'm your host, Scott Frank, CFP, CFA charter holder, and founder of Stone Steps Financial. And I'm your host, James Canole, CFP, MBA, and owner of Root Financial Partners. The premise of our show is simple. Money can be confusing, but it doesn't have to be. Our goal is to answer real personal financial questions that we hear from our clients and our listeners. Each episode, we answer one personal financial question in a clear and understandable way. Because money is a tool. And when you understand the language of money, you can make better decisions to improve your financial life. Hey, James. Hey, Scott. Welcome back to another week. Thank you. Another week. Another question. Yeah. Another 20 minutes of fun. Absolutely. Well, hopefully. It is for us. Hopefully, it is for you guys at home. Hopefully, 20 minutes. Um. Yeah, we love doing these and we love the questions. Please keep them coming in. Um, you know, people learn through hearing about your experience, your questions. It's going to bring things up. We're going to talk about it hopefully in a way that's helpful for the listener today, but also for everyone at home. So do you want to read through the question? I'll read through the question. The question is this. It says, hi, James and Scott. I'm a fairly new listener and have really enjoyed your podcast. Thank you for all the information and advice that you share in an often confusing field. I have a question about how I should handle an inheritance that I recently received from my grandfather. He passed down 556 shares of his stock to me. It's worth about $32,000, and it has a dividend yield of about 3%. I'm 26 years old, living in D.C., with an annual income of $104,000. My fiancé has an annual income of $85,000, and we are saving up to buy a home in this very expensive market, around $850,000 minimum for a small single-family home. My question is, should I keep the full 556 shares of stock that I received, or should I sell it and invest it in a more diversified portfolio, or should I cash it out and keep it in cash in a high-yield savings account? We would like to be able to buy a home in the next three to four years, and we currently have about $10,000 in a savings account that we've saved on our own towards this goal. In addition, we're also putting 15% of our income towards retirement, and we are accelerating our student loan payoff. My worry is that if we only save cash and don't invest, we'll never be able to save for a home in such an expensive and out-of-control housing market. Thanks in advance for any advice you can share. Wow. Yeah, I think that's a sense that a lot of people probably have right now. Yes. So there's a few things to unpack here, right? There are a few things. I think the main thing is how to save for a home in this out-of-control housing market. Yes. But then there's a lot of layers of things within that, with the inheritance or other savings or doing it all. What to do with the windfall? And can we just celebrate how great this person's doing Absolutely. right now? I mean, what, what, can, what, can we start there? Yeah. The fact that you're 26 and reaching out, you have a good income. Your fiance has a nice income. Um, yeah, you live in an expensive town. No doubt about that. But you're already saving 15% towards your retirement. Yeah. You're so ahead of the game. I hope you know that. I mean, that's what I saw when I saw this. Yeah, no, the, the, no, no question about it. Very well done. And let's make sure that we can uh, help maybe even do better with yes. some guidance here. Yes, let's do that. So um, let's break it down. So how about we break it down to what should we do with a windfall? We'll call it, we'll call it a windfall because it can come in different forms for different people. In this instance, we've inherited something from a family member. Yep. So sorry for your loss. Um Sometimes you may get a bonus at work or you might get a big tax refund or you might have stock compensation. All of those can be viewed as a windfall in a sense. Mm -hmm. And let's think about what we should do with it and why. 
Um, and then maybe we could focus more on the main goal of buying a house. Mm-hmm. Let's do that. So let's focus on the windfall first. And we had a recent episode, episode 81, where we actually talked about just this. What do you, what do I do when I receive a windfall? Mm-hmm. But I think the first thing is prioritize what's the main goal. Yeah. Regardless of the windfall. And even maybe taking a step before that, uh, she, she mentioned the windfall was in the form of a stock. Mm-hmm. And now you and I, I, I think a lot of people, they might get hung up on inquiring or asking about the specific stock. Hey, it's this stock or that stock or this. Right. In our perspective, more be a, look at the amount to start with. Mm-hmm. Look, look at, so the amount's $32,000. Yep. So the question of, should I keep it in this stock? Should I sell it? Or should I diversify it into something else? Yeah. Um, start with the main goal that you have. Yeah. And I actually would go back even a touch further and I would ask, okay, so we've inherited something. Uh, I believe we inherited it from a grandfather. And the question is, do, do we know what the cost basis of the shares are? And what I mean by that is when someone passes away, typically the value of things that they uh, hold on the day that they pass away, and, and our business is called the date of death, it's cryptic, but what'll happen is they'll go, oh, the stock was worth this price at the date of death. So when it passes to whoever it passes to in the estate, you have the date of death date is typically the cost basis moving forward. So if you, you know, if, if, uh, if your grandfather held a share of stock for $20 a share, but the moment he passed away, it was worth $100 a share, your cost basis is now $100 a share. That $80 difference between the two, no one had to pay taxes on that. Right. So one of the things we care about is just, well, if you were to sell it today, what would the tax ramifications be of doing so? Mm-hmm. I definitely want to know that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, we want to look at what, uh, what James has alluded to. Well, what, you know, looking at your balance sheet, looking at all the goals that you have, where do we want to put this money and why? Mm-hmm. What's it going to do for you? Mm-hmm. And it seems the way thing, one thing we might want to drive toward is putting this money, helping put this money toward that down payment on a house. Yes, it, it appears because, well, she said it, yes. goal is the home. And because she's putting money away towards retirement and accelerating student loan payoff, sounds like the other areas, at least some of the other big picture areas are handled. So what do we do if we have uh, stock for $32,000 and we want to buy a home in three to four years? Do we keep it in stock, sell it, or diversify it? Yeah. So so that's where it comes down to risk and reward mm-hmm. again and again, right? I know we've talked about this all the time. But you know, if you have stock in one company, um, that one company could uh, go up in value quite a bit. It could also go to zero in an extreme case or anything in between. Mm-hmm. If you diversify into a global portfolio of investments, f- much less likely that it falls to zero, mm-hmm. but it can still be pretty erratic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's anything in between from holding all stocks to holding all cash. Right. And it's knowing what level of risk you're willing to take based on the amount of one, the risk you're willing to take. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Two, do you have the ability to do it? It seems like you may here. But then three, like what's the time horizon for all of this? Three to four years. Three to four years is not a really long time to be investing in the stock market. Right. Um, I know we've done an episode a number of times on where we kind of give you guys the punchline of, would you rather invest in a stock that 57% of the time 
wins on a daily basis mm-hmm. where I think we got to one of the times it was hundred percent of the time it wins, but that was on a 20 year basis and right. it was all the S and P 500. Right. Right. So over time, it usually works in your favor, but there can easily be periods of time when it doesn't. Mm-hmm. So you have to be okay accepting that. Right. Or you could, you know, take some of it and make it really safe and some of it and put it to risk. But whatever you put to risk, you have to be understand what the downside is and you have to be okay with that when you go put it, the money to work. Yeah, I agree. If you're looking at three to four years, if you, if you just look at the stock market historically as measured by the S&P 500 here, it's, been, it's gone up in value probably somewhere in the neighborhood of about 80% of the time. So should you invest this money because you want to buy a home in three to four years? Well, if you put it all under the S&P 500, just statistically speaking, four out of five years, you'll probably make money doing that. So it will help you. It will help to grow your money, help you to be able to put more down on a, an expensive home in this type of a housing market. But 20% of the time, it won't. Yeah. And 20% of the time, if it won't, just ask yourself, how would you feel if your dream home came up and you had the down payment money, but the market was down 30%? And or 50. Couldn't, <laughs> yeah. and yeah. you couldn't do it yeah. because the money that you would set aside was down. You don't have the benefit of just waiting it out if you want to be able to be in a position to buy a home then. Yeah. So there's there's there are a lot of factors in this. Should you invest that money? Um, you know, this is actually kind of a, a common re- recurring theme that mm-hmm. I think a lot of people have because it is a very good question. Mm-hmm. And it comes down to how much uncertainty are you okay with? Mm-hmm. Should you do it? Is are, are, are you okay with probably making money, but maybe losing money? Mm-hmm. If not, then no, you shouldn't. You should probably save that to cash, knowing you're not going to grow at all, but it's money that you can you can absolutely count on. Um, Scott, what you're mentioning is a lot of the examples we use are on the one hand, just cash. On the other hand, 100% of your money in the stock market. Yep. And that's we use that to kind of use the extremes, mm-hmm. both ends of the scenarios that you could use. But if you, st- if you start to think about doing a more balanced approach where maybe half is in something that's more aggressive like the stock market and half is in something more conservative like cash or bonds, you're limiting the upside potential, but mm-hmm. you're also limiting the downside potential and yes. starting to get maybe more consistent returns the more you take that type of an approach. Yes. My f- my hesitation almost always with, cl- I, I, I know that personally I end up being more conservative as my own bias when it comes to short-term funds. Like looking back on it for the last three or four years, of course, now that I know what the future, what the past brought us to today, of course, I wish our clients had invested 100% of their down payments in stocks because it went great. <laughs> but it's always the fear. You don't know what the future holds, right? Right. And so you just, you have to go, to me, you want to go in with a level of understanding of risk that you're just, you're, you're going to be okay no matter what. Mm -hmm. And to me, that usually leans towards being way more conservative when we're looking at shorter term time horizons and funds that we need. The other thing that I would add is, and we haven't seen this for a while since like the two, really the 2008 crisis, but when if we hit an economic downturn in our future and i would actually kind of i would actually looking at like the covid march dip that we had last time around that was felt much more like a a, tr- a more traditional correction than a than a true like going through an economic down cycle because it was a pand- it was not a normal mm-hmm. cy- cyclical motion but like when you hit a real down cycle you typically do see softness in 
real estate as well as in the stock market mm -hmm. at the same time. Well, I don't really want my down payment to be going down in value while home prices are going down in value. <laughs> I'd rather that be pretty stable right. so I can go in and make a strong offer and go buy that house when I want to buy that house. Right. 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 Exactly. And, and we actually did an episode on this too. If you want to take a deeper dive, episode 72 about understanding asset allocation of if you are going to invest, understanding the time horizon that you're investing for, understanding the range of potential outcomes that you could have if you're aggressive, moderate, conservative, anywhere in between. That would probably be a really helpful episode to go back and listen to, to be able to address this more fully. But the other thing I want to address too is, is she said that she inherited shares of a specific stock. Mm -hmm. And one of the options is, should you buy that stock? I know the way that we would reframe that to a lot of clients is if you had $32,000 just in cash, if you inherited cash instead of this particular stock, would you take that cash and go purchase this particular stock? Mm -hmm. If so, then, then maybe keep it mm -hmm. there. But if not, it probably does not make a whole lot of sense to keep all that money in one individual stock, especially with the time horizon that she has, yep. especially knowing that uh, there are probably better alternatives than that. Yep. So unless it was for sentimental reasons or anything else that she wanted to keep a small portion for that, the, for the financial side of things, I probably wouldn't recommend keeping that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, agreed. And then, you know, when we look at the, um, when we shift to the, uh, even more to the bigger picture of like going and buying a home. And I think they mentioned that they're in the DC area. And so, you know, it's expensive. Uh, I think 850K was the minimum for a single family house. And you kind of feel priced out. It is it's so common to feel priced out. So I don't, I don't want you to feel lost there. Um, one of the things we, we looked at was just, you know, there's a few rules of thumb that can be helpful to help you think about how much would you want to pay own for, a, you know, how much would you want to have in a home for the cost of a home? Mm -hmm. And then you can also frame that to help you save more um, to get to owning a home. Mm -hmm. So can we chat about that for a moment too? Yeah, of course. Okay. So, so the one of the rules of thumb that we'll we'll use when we think about how much debt do we want to own on a have on a home is we ideally want to have about of our gross income. So think of that the income that you make before taxes and before you save to retirement accounts and pay your health insurance, you ideally want that to be like twenty eight percent or less. So about thirty percent or less of your your gross income. So if you make a hundred thousand dollars a year, you'd want to all those costs in total to be $30,000 a year or less. Does that make sense? Yeah. And there's so there's tons of rules of thumb with this, but this is kind of a middle of the road starting point. We'll just use as an example. Exactly. Yes. And, and so then the things that we're going to bake in when you go buy a house, if you want to start looking around at the mortgage calculators and things like that, is you know, you're you're gonna you're gonna have a mortgage and the mortgage is gonna have more than likely a principal and an interest payment. Um, and so you want to know what that is. And then you want to, you're going to have to pay homeowner's insurance and you're going to have to pay property taxes. And those four things combined, you really want to add up to be that 28% or less of your total income, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Okay. So one of the things that I would do if I was this listener is I would go look at um, on an $850,000 home. You know, I just quickly looked at $850,000 home if we put 20% down and a three and a quarter uh, interest rate, which I think is decent for right now, which would be great. I said insurance was about oh, 1800 a year and property taxes, I assumed would be like 1.1 or maybe a little bit more than that, 1.1% property taxes. Total is probably about 3,900 a month. Um, and I'm not going to go and geek out into every single detail of all those things, but just think of it this way. 
whatever your rent is now, if your rent is $2,000 a month, and I have no idea what it is, I'm just making a number up, right? But take 3,900 minus 2,000, that's $1,900 a month difference. Start saving that to a savings account. And what it does is it forces you to feel what it's going to feel like to be a homeowner mm-hmm. right? ahead of time mm-hmm. for this size home. And is this the right size home for you? Because it's not only the home that we live in, it's how's the cash flow make you feel as a family, mm-hmm. especially if we're younger and in the future we want to have kids or maybe one of us wants to go through a shift in our career where we want to go back to school or something like that. You need to build your home price for resiliency. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways you can do that is just by testing what will it feel like to own it, go save that additional amount each month. Now you've just created a forced savings for yourself to go get yourself in a home faster. Yeah, because if you're if if to use your example, friend is two thousand dollars, and you want to feel feel what it feels like to have a home that costs eight hundred fifty thousand dollars, if you're going to put twenty percent down, if you're saving that extra nineteen hundred per month to simulate the mortgage payment, and you're saying, "Hey, I just can't do it. There's no margin." Well, that tells us very quickly an eight hundred fifty thousand dollars home probably isn't the best bet for you. It's definitely not the best bet for you. Right. You you might buy it and be really excited for the first month or so, but when that payment kicks in. You're going to be really upset that you made that purchase. You're absolutely house poor. So, if that is the case, there's a couple ways you could look at that. One, you might revisit the time horizon you have until you buy a home. Mm -hmm. So you might go back to the beginning part of this discussion of uh, maybe we wouldn't invest for just three to four years because there is some risk inherent in that. If you're looking at this and saying, okay, you know what? It's actually going to be six, seven, eight years until we can buy this type home. Well, that changes that part of the equation. So Mm -hmm. maybe you can change the way you invest. Mm-hmm. But number two, it does help you to solve for what is that threshold? You can kind of work into what mortgage, what size mortgage you could afford Yep. by by adding up your rent plus the extra amount that you could save. And in doing that, you could work backwards into the size of the mortgage, which helps you work backwards into the size of the home that you could get. So right. it is definitely a good exercise to do before you make that purchase. Yes. And if you do decide to scale down on those things, the amount of cost that you want to have on, on your first home um, and then the savings amount. Well, if you keep saving is not high, <laughs> you're just going to get to be able to buy the house faster because yeah. your savings amount will get there faster. Um, there are also, you know, we're, you know, ideally, you know, it is in an ideal world, you have that 20% to put down on a home purchase, which is kind of the standard. Mm-hmm. There are programs that exist out there for like first time home buyers where you can put down less. When you do that, usually you have to do things like pay, um, uh, property mortgage insurance and a couple of other things that increase the cost of ownership, but you can get in without having as much equity in the house if that's really important to you. Yeah, if it's really important or if you're not going to be able to get in for a very long time and you you realize that kind of that rent versus buy analysis just isn't working in your favor, um, then yeah, there, there are certainly other options. So it's yeah. nice to have 20%, you avoid the PMI, uh, but as they mentioned, I think people's first instinct is, oh my gosh, well, how do I do that in this crazy housing market? And that's where you need to have balance between all these different things that we're looking at here. Um, so, yeah. Cool. Anything look else? At, I would say if you want to look at the other costs of home ownership, because it's not just your mortgage plus insurance plus taxes, that's your, no. your fixed monthly payment. Yes. But there are other costs, whether it's maintenance, whether it's other little things along the way. Check out episode ne- uh, number 62, where we actually talk about the total cost of homeownership, um, because it's unfortunately not just that one ma- payment that you're paying to the bank, No, but <laughs> it is something that I would say it looks like this listener is doing a good job with retirement, doing a good job of paying down 
student loans. So my feedback would be whatever else you can't afford to save to a home, uh, great. It, it seems as if you're on track in other areas where you're not you're not saving for a home at the expense of the other things in your life, which is always a good thing to be doing, of course. Yeah. You have any other thoughts on this, Scott? No, I think I think we covered it. Um, thanks again for the question. If you guys have any questions, please send them in. If you enjoy this and it's helpful for you and you feel it'd be helpful for other people to listen to this podcast, please take a minute to leave a review on the um, Apple Podcasts. Um, it's so helpful to spread the word and help more people. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for the question. Scott, good to see you. You too. See you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Real Personal Finance Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a five-star review. And if you have a question that you'd like for us to answer, then head over to the Real Personal Finance website at realpersonalfinance.co. There's a section on the bottom of each page there where you can submit your question for us to answer in a future episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for a basis for investment decision. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, or other professional services.